0: Welcome to Europe Chats. Today we will look at one key aspect of the European Council's functioning, the conclusions issued at the end of each meeting. We will try to understand how they have evolved, what their key purpose is, and how they come about. At the end of this talk, we will also suggest some recommendations on how to best write and read European Council conclusions. Jim Claus is steps as Secretary General and former Director General at the General Secretariat of the Council of the European Union. He was involved in the preparation of European Council conclusions for almost two decades and is therefore best placed to be our guide. Hello, Jim. Hello, Miriam. European Council conclusions elicit huge media interest. Each European summit is attended by hundreds of journalists. What key purpose do European Council conclusions serve and why are they important?
1: Uh, Miriam, I should maybe start by saying a word about the European Council as such. Unlike the other institutions in our system, the European Council was not created by the treaties. It created itself. In the 60s and 70s, as the European community, as it was called at the time, developed, the heads of state and government considered that they were the only ones who didn't have a formal role in this. The ministers were working in the council, but the Heads of state government didn't meet. So they decided they wanted to get involved in this. And in 1974, uh, President Giscard convened a summit of the leaders. He asked them to meet regularly, at least three or four times a year. And they decided those meetings would be prepared. If you've done that, you have de facto created an institution. Now, for the first decades of its existence, uh, the... European Council had no legal status whatsoever and could not adopt any formal uh, decisions. Those were left to the official institutions. That did not mean, however, that those meetings were not important. They were highly important. Why? Because after each meeting, the heads of state or government would adopt presidency conclusions by consensus where they stated which direction the union should take and what should be done. And if you have such uh, powerful uh, people like the heads of state or government and the president of the commission, I should add, who express a certain number of uh, requests, then, of course, people will listen and there will be a lot of media interest. Now, uh, so the importance of the conclusions derives from the status of the people who compose that body, the European Council. The uh, single European Act in 1985-86, for the first time, recognised the existence of this body, of the European Council. But it was only formally introduced or confirmed as an institution of the EU with the Lisbon Treaty. Uh, The Lisbon Treaty overall, as far as the functioning is concerned, of uh, of the uh, European Council is concerned, confirmed what had been going on on the ground. It introduced two changes. The first change was that it would no longer be the rotating presidency which chaired the European Council, but a full-time president. The first one was Mr. Van Rompuy, the second one uh, was Tusk, and the third one was Charles who is now the uh, uh, the president. And at the same time, it was decided that the leaders would meet alone, without ministers, most of the time.
0: Are European Council conclusions always adopted by consensus?
1: They're practically always adopted by consensus. This is, of course, logical, because European Council meetings were just meetings of national leaders who would sit around a table, discuss issues, and adopt conclusions. There was no legal basis to do this by qualified majority voting. Now, the Lisbon Treaty, which formalized the existence of the European Council, actually confirms a didactic in, in the Article 15 of the, on the Treaty of the European Union, confirms the rule of consensus for the decisions of the European Council. There are a few exceptions. Uh, the European Council can vote, uh, in some cases like nominations or uh, when they decide on council configurations. But those are exceptions. Now, uh, so overall, uh, presidency, or now European Council conclusions are adopted by consensus. There have been in the past some exceptions. I give you three examples. In June 1985, in the European Council in Milan, they were discussing the convening of an intergovernmental conference to change the treaties. This led to the single European Act. Now, there were three delegations at the time, the Brits, the Danes, and the Greeks, who didn't want this to happen. Then the Italian presidency find a trick. Uh, they considered that the convening of the intergovernmental conference was a procedural decision, which, according to the treaties, could be taken by the council by simple majority. And this is what happened. The second time was again under Italian presidency in autumn 1990, Uh, There were two uh, meetings in Rome which decided on the mandates for the intergovernmental conference on the political union and on the economic and monetary union which led to the Maastricht Treaty. Now there, Mrs. Thatcher, on behalf of the UK, had reservations on parts of the mandate on the political union and a general reservation on the one for EMU. The others simply took note. They put the reservations into a footnote, but went ahead regardless. Uh, Pour la petite histoire, a few months later, Mrs. Thatcher was out of uh, office, partly because of her isolation in Rome. More recently, in December 2019, we had a difficult discussion about whether the EU should go carbon neutral by 2050. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Polish Prime Minister had a problem at the time. He said he could not accept this. So in the conclusions... There is a sentence which says that Poland cannot commit to implement this objective as far as it is concerned, and the European Council will come back to this in June 2020. Again, a few months later, they did come back to it, and everybody accepted the, uh, the objective for 2050. So those are very, very few exceptions. But on the whole, it's consensus.
0: Can you tell us a little bit more what the European Council conclusions are for. What do they do if they are not decisions?
1: Uh, There maybe I can start with the Lisbon Treaty because the Lisbon Treaty confirms what had always happened. The Lisbon Treaty states in Article 15, paragraph one, that the European Council shall provide the Union with the necessary impetus for its development and shall define the general political directions and priorities thereof. It shall not exercise legislative functions. This loosely worded uh, definition of its role leaves, of course, a lot of margin of maneuver for the European Council. And it actually caters very largely for the various things the European Council had been doing since its inception. There are five uh, ways, five uh, elements which I want to quote you. The first one is, of course, the European Council has always agreed on major decisions shaping the future of the EU. This means, of course, treaty changes. It has always gone via the heads of state government. Uh, Secondly, they have for a long time been setting political orientations, positions on key policies. For instance, in 1985-86, when the Union launched its massive programme towards the achievement of a complete single market by 1992. That again happened at that level. Thirdly, and you see this very often when you read the conclusions, the European Council does tasking it asks the member states or the other institutions to do a certain number of things. Fourthly, the European Council has uh, a habit of commenting on major political developments outside of the EU. You see this, of course, now with the Ukraine crisis and the Russian aggression against Ukraine. It's the European Council which sets out the position of the Union already uh, in, in, uh, uh, quite early uh, in its functioning, in 1980. Uh, they had uh, a very detailed discussion on the Middle East peace process at the time, and they adopted the so-called Venice Declaration in 1980, which was actually groundbreaking, because it was the first time that there was a call for uh, the solution of the two states. The fourth uh, area where the European Council um, intervenes is it reacts to crises. Now, we've seen this, of course, since 2008 – Uh, on the subprime crisis, migration crisis, Brexit, COVID, and now the Ukraine. It is always at the level of the European Council that uh, the main direction of where we go and the framework for dealing with the problem are being dealt with. Then, of course, those are the core activities. It is true that there are also two other things which I should mention. First of all, there are some horizontal issues like the MFF or climate change where, for political reasons, it's only the heads who can actually decide things. And so they go into quite a lot of detail uh, uh, setting out the agenda. And secondly, there are times when the discussion to define a mandate for the Council to negotiate legislation with the Parliament, when they are blocked. And there's the only solution is for the European Council to unblock it politically.
0: But aren't these two, the latter examples, then... In breach of the, of the treaties, actually, uh, when it comes to the role of other institutions?
1: No, I mean, I wouldn't go as far as that. But there are some borderline cases. Now, first, on the MFF, I really don't think uh, it is a problem why. First, because the MFF, like the European Council, was not created by the European Council and was actually an agreement among the member states uh, in 1988 for the first time. Later on, it was integrated into the treaty. But the regulation which leads to the MFF is adopted in any way, not by qualified majority, but the unanimity of the Council and has to be approved by the Parliament. So the fact that this is done at the uh, European Council level uh, is not shocking. Also, uh, let's be very honest, there would not be an MFF if it wasn't for the leaders to decide it. They are the only ones who can sort out the question. The situation is a bit more critical and the European uh, Parliament criticizes this situation. Uh, They have a right to some extent when you talk about climate change because there uh, in fact the decision making is by qualified majority and co-decision with the Parliament. So if the European Council goes too far in detailed prescriptions, the Parliament will say with this kind of mandate we have no margin of maneuver to negotiate with the Council. So uh, It is something which you have to look at with a certain degree of common sense, Uh, but on the whole I think what the European Council does is setting the broad framework uh, of decisions and then of course the institutions play their full role.
0: Can you say a bit more about um, how the European Council conclusions evolved over time?
1: Yes, uh, there there have been various uh, developments. Um, initially, they were relatively short and to the point. And then, of course, they started developing and becoming longer and longer for various reasons. One of the reasons was that the rotating presidency, which at the time chaired the meetings, they wanted to use the Council, European Council conclusions for their self-glorification, you know, putting in everything which had happened so, uh, and to show how well they had done their job. The second reason is that as the Union went more into foreign policy, diplomats love long declarations. So we got into the habit of each time uh, going round the world and saying something on every single international issue on the table, which is, of course, slightly artificial and which led to very long conclusions. Uh, I remember in 1995, I think it was, there were conclusions uh, at the European Council in Madrid which went to 130 pages with the annexes. Now, this is, of course, patently absurd, Mm -hmm. and that is why in 1999 in Helsinki, they had themselves said, we have to make it shorter, uh, 15 pages maximum. Uh, This was confirmed by Sevilla in uh, 2002, but still, I mean, it took a certain time to adjust. At the same time, uh, as the conclusions grew longer at the time, the language became more and more flowery. Uh, um, after the Danish no in the to the Maastricht Treaty, you know, there was a feeling that we should be closer to citizens and appeal to citizens, which is perfectly understandable. But this of course led to uh, a flourish of appeals to the citizens. I mean, there was a lack in Uh, uh, conclusion in 2001 where frankly the heads did not speak to the citizens but for the citizens because every single sentence started by saying the citizens want this and that and that and this was clearly a bit absurd Uh, the other thing of course is that when you look at the European Council conclusions sometimes the the, 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 the language being used or the length and uh, the flowery style is inversely proportional to the competence of the union so when you talk about the single currency the conclusions are crisp clear you know when you talk about in employment which is not really an eu competence it goes all over the place and everybody there was a time when everybody invented their own uh, program uh, so uh, we had a copenhagen chapter on employment a brussels action plan against unemployment general principles for employment in essen in germany uh, a florence pact Uh, Against uh, for employment. Dublin Declaration, Luxembourg European Council on Employment, the Cardiff Action Plan for Employment, I could go on like that, I mean it was becoming slightly ridiculous. Now the uh, uh, decision after Sevilla to uh, limit the conclusions uh, pointed in a better direction and then of course with the arrival of a permanent President of the European Council who uh, uh, doesn't really care whether a decision is taken in June or in July under which rotating presidency. So that has also taken away the incentive to put in self glorification parts for the rotating presidency. So now I think the conclusions are uh, much shorter and to the point.
0: So you're saying that the European Council in a way lost its discipline in the 1990s and in 2000s, but then it rediscovered a more concise, uh, utilitarian and um, sensible way of drafting conclusions. Are they understandable for the general public now?
1: They are not always easy to understand, but they are much uh, easier to understand than before. I think they are more focused. Uh, now, let me say a few words about reading European Council conclusions, um, because this is, of course, the outcome of political decisions, uh, discussions between leaders from 27 member countries, plus the president of the commission. There are many divergent opinions. So from time to time, this is an exception, but it does happen that we consciously used bad English to paper over these agreements. And then, of course, the uh, translators would be very unhappy and say, uh, we don't really understand in English. We went to translate it in Swedish or Dutch or something in the following way. And I was at the time in charge of the conclusions. I said, don't do that. You translate literally. There is a reason why this was being proposed and you have to uh, accept it. Now, this should, of course, be the exception because normally you should have a text which is clear and can easily be translated, but it does happen. Then you have the use of what I call weasel words. You You would say, the European Council agrees that this should be done. You put a comma and you say, as appropriate. You already see that it's not an unreserved approval of something, or you would say... Uh, The uh, Commission is charged to do this, in full respect of the competences of the other institutions. You know that behind the scenes there is a little uh, battle going on about uh, competences. Or we say things like uh, something is being adopted without becoming or being a precedent. That normally is a fair sign that it will be a precedent later on, actually. Uh, We see this, um, maybe we will see this with the Recovery and Resilience Fund, uh, which was adopted uh, in the framework of the Covid crisis. Uh, And then, of course, you also have some expressions which one has to decrypt. It reads oddly when you see that the European Council welcomes the intention of the Commission to make a proposal. This is wording simply because the Commission has the exclusive right of initiative for legislation, and they're very jealous about it. So they don't like it when the European Council says, we want you to make a proposal. So you have this kind of formula, but it means, of course, exactly the same. Then, of course, you have small changes in one or two words which can actually change the meaning of the European Council's conclusions. So you would have a long development, and then you say that the European Council approves... Well, Well, that's pretty clear. You have an intermediate stage where the European Council welcomes, or warmly welcomes, something. That means, okay, there is overall a positive attitude, but the details have to be worked out. And then, of course, sometimes the delegation would say, actually, I would prefer simply to say that we noted this. This means there is no agreement, it is simply noted. So you have to look at the European Council uh, conclusions in this way. There was an interesting incident in 1991. The Luxembourg presidency had prepared a draft treaty for the later Maastricht Treaty and it was discussed at the European Council in Luxembourg in 1991. And so the Luxembourg presidency said, and this will be the basis for the future future negotiations under the Dutch presidency, which will follow. Then the Dutch prime minister at the time, Mr. Lubach, said, oh, president, I don't want to make any difficulties, but I think we should just change one word, and I'll be happy. Instead of saying this is the basis, it should be a basis. Now, that, of course, changes everything. Uh, some people around the table understood already at the time that this meant that the Dutch wanted to do a different draft treaty from the Luxembourg one, and that's what they did in september they then there was an outcry they had to withdraw it. but you see uh, little you know fights around words they have a a, a certain a certain a certain meaning um, then this is more for um, as an anecdote you know there was a very difficult discussion in two thousand and eleven about the uh, assistance programme to Greece. And the Finnish Prime Minister uh, insisted very much um, on the reference to a need for collateral. You know, When you, you get a loan, you have to give collateral to guarantee the loan. And uh, then the Greek Prime Minister said, OK, he was a bit upset about this, and he said, um, well, um, uh, is there anyone else around the table who is in need of a Greek island? Uh, So, you know, interesting things that happen. Uh, In terms of format, uh, I think now the conclusions are more standardised. They are between four to eight or ten pages. There are exceptions when you have such an important deal as the MFF or the recovery fund, but on the whole, we don't exceed the ten pages. And, of course, they now focus much more than before on what is actually being discussed in the room. So, if you read the European Council conclusions since 2008, the emphasis was first on the economic problems, then on migration, then on the handling of Brexit, then on Covid, and now on Ukraine. And this is entirely normal.
0: How are the conclusions prepared today? How many revisions does it take? Who prepares the first version? And um, how long does the process take in general?
1: That's a difficult question because it's a huge negotiating process. But what I would like to say first is that in old times, when I was a young Antici, assistant to our permanent representative, uh, the process was not very transparent. There were lots of negotiations. The presidency worked on the conclusions, talked to some delegations, talked to the commission, but the delegations actually only saw the complete set of draft conclusions on the second day of the European Council when they would be slipped at five o'clock in the morning under the door of the Antichis, who then had to get up, copy, prepare, Uh, for breakfast with the Prime Minister and the delegation to discuss them. That has changed now over time, and it is now even in the treaty. So today we have a formal process which I can briefly explain. About six weeks before the European Council, the President of the European Council issues a draft annotated agenda Now, who does the draft? Well, the draft is being done by the Council of Secretariat and the cabinet of the president of the European Council says those are the issues, and it's, of course, the president who decides. Those are the issues we want to discuss. This is what we want to achieve. But before this is being issued, it is being shared with the commission, with the rotating presidency, and the EAS for external relations. And they have the possibility to comment. Mm And the president, on the basis of their comments, takes his final decision and then it's issued. Now, this text goes to Coribert, the permanent representatives, and to the General Affairs Council, the Europe ministers, who discuss it in detail. And, of course, uh, the Council Secretariat, the Cabinet, we listen very carefully, and then uh, when we prepare the conclusions, we take into account what has been said. About two weeks before the European Council Along the same mode, again, under the authority of the President of the European Council, there are guidelines, which are already more detailed. And sometimes the guidelines are already pre-conclusions, again, being discussed in Korea. And then we take note. And then the last week before the European Council draft conclusions are issued on Monday, Uh, uh, They are are first issued a few days before the European Council, you have a corporate discussion, we change them, then they go to the General Affairs Council on Tuesday before the European Council, they are again changed, and then the final draft goes to the heads of state or government. So it's a more civilized and a more uh, transparent process uh, than before. Now having said all of this, there is of course an informal process because the Union is a huge negotiating machine. So you have many contacts between the so-called chirpers. It's the uh, European advisors of the Hedged-Cleaned Government who talk to each other all the time, bilaterally in small groups, in bigger groups. They talk to the Commission, they talk to the Council Secretary, they talk to the Cabinet of the President of the European Council. So there is a constant sort of uh, ongoing process. So the outcome of the conclusions is, of course, There are many people participating in some way or other uh, to this. Uh, uh, So uh, you have to follow both the official or the more formal process, but you also have to be very much aware there's a lot of negotiation going on behind the scenes.
0: Maybe a final question. What would be your recommendations on how to best write and use the European Council
1: conclusions? It's always a bit delicate for a former civil servant to give recommendations to the heads of state and government. But, okay, let me just give a few personal remarks in this respect. The first one is keep things short. Every paragraph should contain either a position, a decision, or a tasking. Uh, That makes them much more reasonable and it looks more serious. Secondly, it's important, as I said before, that you focus on the points which are actually discussed in the meeting uh, this keeps them shorter too the longer the conclusions are the more confusion you have in the press conferences if we have conclusions of 30 pages there's not one head of state of government who's going to read them in detail, they don't have the time and they're not interested in that what then happens is that after the European Council you know, the advisor to the French president would say Monsieur le Président Uh, you should, in your press conference, talk about paragraph 2 and 23. They are really important for France. And the advisor to the German Chancellor will say, Chancellor, you should concentrate on paragraph 9 and paragraph 11, and so on. Then you get into the situation where the people listening to the leaders in their national press conference say those people have not been in the same meeting. So if you focus on what is actually discussed, they will talk about the same issues. And I think over the years we've become much better at this, so uh, this is my second point. The third one is, in spite of what I said about using bad English, which was a bit of a joke, uh, it is keep the language as simple and clear as possible. Do not use too many adjectives and epithets. Do not try to use the conclusions to uh, what some people call appeal to the citizens. I personally tend to think that the spinning should be done around the conclusions, should be done uh, by uh, the spin doctors of the various member states, not via the exact drafting of the European uh, Council. I would also say avoid self-congratulation. It doesn't read well. You know, if you say, we've today done something which really helps the citizens, I don't think it washes with citizens. Uh, I think it's much better that you adopt the RRF with 750 billion, because then the citizens who are not stupid will understand that you've worked for them. So this is a very, very important point. Uh, uh, I would, in this respect, say that I had a method when I worked with my team on the European Council conclusions. It's what I call the negativity test. It goes as follows. When you take a sentence, try to put it in the negative and see whether it doesn't become completely absurd. i give you a simple example. The European Council cares about its citizens. Try to put that in the negative. The European Council doesn't care about its citizens. No one would write anything like that. Well, then you don't need the positive sentence either. Uh, Or uh, the European Union aims at becoming the best economy in the world. This was Lisbon, for instance. Don't write because you would never say that we're not aiming to become the best, then you don't have to say this kind of thing. So uh, 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 keep the language clear, simple, understandable. Then I would say a fourth point, be reasonably honest. Now, from time to time, you have to paper over disagreements, But if you do it systematically, you will lose credibility. So from time to time, there's absolutely nothing wrong to say, we had a long discussion today about such and such an issue, and we still disagree. But we can assure you that we're going to work together and find a solution later. It's perfect. People understand it. It's perfectly understandable. And my last point is not directly linked to the conclusion, the drafting of it, or the itself. It is about the follow-up. Because, as I said before, the European Council conclusions are not formal decisions. So if the institutions, the other institutions, do not put this into legislation, all the member states follow up on what's been agreed Nothing is going to happen. So, uh, in that respect, uh, over the last years, a lot of progress has been made. For instance, now, just to give you one example, after each European Council, the Council Secretariat, after having consulted the Commission, the rotating presidency, and the EAS, would do a factual paper saying who should do what and when. And this is then discussed in Correper, so that there is a joint ownership of the conclusions so that we do not promise things which are not going to happen and again I must say personally that over the years uh, we have done a lot of progress let me end with an appeal to the people who watch this who are presumably are interested in the, European count, in the European Union, I think I can only advise them to always to regularly follow the European Council conclusions, to read them and to try to understand them, because they tell you what makes the leaders tick, what makes the institutions work, where they are, and in which direction they want to go.
0: Thank you so much for these insights, Jim. And thank you all for watching. TEPSA regularly publishes its analysis of European Council conclusions. If you're interested, please check our website on tepsa.eu. See you next time.
1: This podcast is co-funded by the European Union.
0: The European Commission's support for the production of this podcast does not constitute an endorsement of the contents which reflects the views only of the authors and the Commission cannot be held responsible for any use which may be made of the information contained therein.